So we're going to have a message. It's going to really set the stage for, for uh, Christmas, I hope. Uh, it's in the book of Titus, um, uh, and it's a wonderful focus on, on the Lord. So uh, we've had this theme in the book of Titus, uh, a, house, a house in order with sound doctrine and, and godly, godliness has been our theme. And, uh, and this, of course, is such a godly, gracious a local church family. I'm so thankful for each one. And we're growing together in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And the Word of God instructs our hearts. Amen? Not just tickles our ears, but instructs our hearts and leads us in doctrine, which is right thinking, and then in faith, which is trusting our Lord and Savior. So uh, perhaps we can stand together and just prayerfully uh, hear the words as I read uh, our reading today from Titus 2. It won't be on the screen, but you can, you can look in your Bibles or just quietly listen from the uh, New International Version. Titus chapter 2, from verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So, Father, once again, we ask for your blessing on this time following in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's be seated together. Okay, as we follow along carefully together this morning, we remember in our study of chapter 2, the first 10 verses, uh, Paul instructing Titus gives certain exhortations to the people of God about conduct. He first speaks to the older men, to the older women the younger women and the younger men, and ends with the slaves or the servants, that they would live in accordance to the gospel. And of course, the most powerful testimony of the gospel, of the life and the power of the gospel, is not just in a sermon, but it's in, it's in people's lives. It's the transformed, changed lives of people. And that's what people see when they come to this local church. They see godliness on display, not just a message, but a life. And in our passage, he, he comes to the last group, and that is uh, to slaves and masters. And in the context, of course, we know in the Roman Empire there were millions of slaves. Um, Paul, of course, not condoning slavery, but he adds this principle of godliness to those who are in that arena. Slaves and also masters as well are addressed in other epistles and places. This doesn't directly apply to us, but in a sense it does because the principle of servants and masters can speak to our workplace and what it means to be a Christian employee. And when you consider it that way, it has some very relevant things to say to us. We pick it up in verse 9 where it says, teach the slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them. And of course, that's addressing the idea of submission. 
in the heart, recognizing an order and an authority that is in place. And as the Christian, we honor that authority, not, not so much because of the particular boss or the person or the company, but unto the Lord. We live according to a higher principle, a higher honor code. We live before God. It's a very important principle in our hearts and lives. It says to try and please them. Why? Because they are our bosses. And we want to honor God in our workplace. We want our boss to be pleased with what we're instructed to do and what we carry out. We desire to do a good job. We are, we are not to slack or to cut corners, but we are to give our all, eight hours for eight hours, because we live before our God. We want to fulfill the tasks that are given, and perhaps even more than that, we would go the extra mile because we are Christians. And we often hear that testimony. We, we get a good report on certain Christians in their workplace because of their ethics, because of their effort, because of their commitment, because of their faithfulness, because of their attitude. It's a wonderful thing to the glory of God. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3.22. He says, Servants, obey in all things your earthly masters, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So not just when your boss is watching or when men are looking on, but in the private place in my responsibilities, I give my all because I live before my God. How wonderful that is. And then verse 23 of Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Wonderful. Then it says, notice it goes on here in Titus 2.9, not to talk back to them. Literally, it means not to speak against or oppose with obstinance. The Christian work, follow, the Christian worker follows the instructions he does what he's asked to do. It doesn't mean you can't offer your opinion, your, your suggestions, but you are not set to oppose that authority and that figure just for the sake of it, unless, of course, it might violate your convictions or to do what is right or, or comply with the law. But you want to honor him in the workplace. Maybe you have a difficult boss. Hopefully none of the church staff are going to say, yeah. <laughs> But maybe you have a difficult boss, but you can pray for him. And I often find the way to find God's heart for someone is to pray for them. Verse 10, it says, And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And of course, this speaks about honesty. We remember with the Cretans, in this context, in 1.12 of Titus, it says that the Cretans are always liars. They had a reputation of not being honest. So Paul, instructing Titus in Crete to address this issue, says that they would not steal from their masters. You might say, well, no one will ever know. But we don't think like that because we say, oh, I, 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 my God will know. My God will know. Not pilfering or skimming off the top or bringing home supplies or claiming for hours that I did not work, but being honest before God because we believe this principle. If I honor God, he will honor me. And he does that. And this sense of honesty emanating the life of a Christian. 
Why? Notice this phrase that follows. To show that they can be fully trusted. Isn't that a great phrase? This word show means to give ample evidence. In your life gives ample evidence that you are trustworthy. And eventually you would earn that reputation in your workplace and in your life. They wouldn't question your honesty. So that in every way, they, the servants, the workers, will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, attractive. Or the King James says it this way, you will adorn the doctrine of God. You will, you will wear the beauty of God. The Greek word for adorn or attractive is cosme. It's where we get the word cosmetics. The purpose of beautifying something. or to bring out the beauty of something that is already there, to accentuate it. And this says that the life of a spirit-filled Christian who is living in grace can emanate in such a way that it beautifies the doctrine. It beautifies the gospel. And of course, that's a wonderful witness for the Lord. And now the key principle to it all is brought out in in verse 11. Now let's, let's pause and recap. All through these verses, Paul is speaking about certain conduct, godliness, good works. But he wants to make it crystal clear that all of these works or conduct or godliness is a result of grace. It's a result of grace. So in verse 11, he says, For or because... So he says, the older men, the older women, the younger men, live this way, this should be your conduct, this should, because the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is one of those beautifully clear gospel statements in Paul's writings. And he says, grace that brings salvation is the same grace that brings godliness. That's what it teaches in this context. That's what the word for means at the beginning of verse 11. It connects Paul's reason to expect this conduct in the church family is because of God's grace that has appeared. Do you understand that? Paul says this is the conduct that we should see and expect because of God's grace that has appeared and the change and the powerful effect it has in people's lives. Oh, we should live this way because the grace of God has appeared. Not because we are good, able people, strong in our flesh or brought up in a good moral household. No, because grace is empowering our lives. Because this conduct is the the right or fitting response to the grace of God in someone's life. For the mathematician... It adds up. Where there is grace in someone's life and it's powerfully affecting that person, there will be fruit. If there isn't fruit, you need to go back and check the math. Because our natural tendency is to try and live up to something instead of living in something. Right? Our natural tendency would be to read verses 1 through 10 and say, okay, Here I go. Where am I? Am I an older man or a younger man? I don't know. Where do I fit? Oh, I should be living like this, and I'm going to try with all. No, we're missing the point. Because Ephesians 2.10, 
We are saved by grace through faith, 8 and 9. And verse 10 says, unto good works that were created before that we should what? Walk in them. Walk in them. The works are prepared beforehand and now we are to walk in them. There's no striving or sweat or energy of the flesh, but there is a resting place as we are yoked up with Jesus and he bears fruit in our lives. It's not about imitation. It's about transformation. It's not about morality. It's about spirituality. So Paul makes it clear. He speaks of these qualities of life on what basis? The grace of God has appeared. Think of it. What has appeared in this verse? Grace. If there is one word that could capture or encapsulate the gospel, which Paul uses so masterfully all the way through his writings, it is this word, charis. It is grace. It is the free gift or the undeserved favor of God. And oh, how we need to hit the pause button often and marvel at the principle of God's great grace. For it has appeared. Notice it's the grace of God. This undeserved expression, this very extension of himself, of his love, of his mercy, of his person to us, it is the grace of God extended to us. What a marvel. And it says the grace of God has appeared. This is the word epiphano. It's where we get the word epiphany from. Epiphany. Like this bright light shining out of the darkness in a moment. The Greek word means to make visible. Notice that. It means that God made his grace visible. Like an epiphany shining forth in the, in the darkness. That his grace was made visible and put on full glorious display. If the grace of God could ever appear, it could never appear more beautifully, more clearly, more powerfully than this. Than God becoming a man, coming to the earth with the purpose of going to the cross to die for sinful men. There could be no greater display or epiphany or clear revelation of what grace is than God doing what he did according to the gospel. His appearance through the incarnation, meaning that he took on flesh, that he became a man, but also all the way through his public ministry to the cross, the death, the burial, and resurrection, puts on display his grace. Through Christ, grace has appeared. God became a man. Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, died for us. Salvation offered to all. And notice that in the phrase. Grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. No one is excluded. No one is disqualified. No sinner is too far away. But grace is put on display that through Christ, salvation is offered to all. Marvelous that is. We would never have any hope of grasping grace, of course, firstly, without the Holy Spirit. 
but also without the personal manifestation of Christ and who he is and what he did for us. You could say, what is grace? And you could just say, oh, look at the cross. Contemplate that. That with the Bible open in your life and the Holy Spirit teaching you, as you marvel at the cross, you you get some growing understanding of what grace is. And in the anointing, in a message, or in your devotional time, or in a moment, in a rhema, God can show you and you can say, oh, grace. It is all by his great grace. That God would come for sinners. But not to judge sinners, but to be judged for sinners because of love. To bring about a way of salvation. And I thought of this, that through the cross, there is, number one, the manifestation of grace. Number two, there is the demonstration of grace. And number three, There is the extension of grace. We see this same principle in Timothy. I'll read you 2 Timothy 1.9. It says, He who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. But look at this but has now been revealed by the appearing, it's the same word, epiphany, of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Through this epiphany, through Christ and his life and the cross, this epiphany of grace, the undeserved favor of God extended to every sinner. And this grace that not only saves us, but changes us and brings forth the fruit of godliness to the glory of God. This salvation transforms our lives, and this is what's brought to light in verse 12. It, speaking of grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace is our teacher. The Greek word, paduo, it's where we get peda pedagogy for the education from the child all the way up. It is an educator, a teacher. Grace is our teacher. Wonderful. Spurgeon says, grace has disciples. The question is, are you a disciple of grace? For grace is the teacher. And notice, what does it teach us here in verse 12? It teaches us that we would live a life according to sound doctrine and godliness. The grace doesn't just save us, the grace changes us. The more that we are growing in grace, in our appreciation and understanding of grace, through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, it affects our life. So if someone is not changed then we have to question, really, if that's the biblical grace. It's either not biblical grace or they're not a good student. Because if they're a good student of true grace, their life will change. Because that's what grace teaches. Right? 
So someone says, oh, I'm saved, but I'm going to go and live like hell. Well, grace isn't teaching you that. Grace would teach you to live like heaven. Grace would teach you that there will be an expression of Christ in your life. Grace teaches us to say no. Or the ESV says, grace is training us to renounce. Or the King James says, teaching us to deny ungodliness. The word is disavow, reject, or refuse. Grace teaches me, no, to refuse ungodliness. Romans 6.12 and on says, Therefore do not let sane reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And that should raise a question. Well, how? How do I not let sin reign in my mortal body? And he tells us the answer, not by the law, but by grace. Verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have what? Dominion. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. And if we are living under grace, then sin shall no more have dominion over you. Does that mean you don't sin anymore? Of course not. We are sinners and we will still fail and stumble and sin. But sin no longer has dominion over me. There is a certain control that we have by the Spirit through His grace. And we experience progressive victory in our life. Not perfection. We're all sinners. We're in the same boat. We fail daily. But there is grace for us every moment of the way. There is grace to prevent us from sinning. And then there is grace for us when we do. But grace has an incredible effect on our life. Some say that grace is a license to sin. You ever heard that phrase? They say, oh, if you teach too much grace, then people will go out and use it and abuse it. And they'll live in sin because it's all by grace. And we would say, well, hold on a minute. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't say if you give people grace, they will go and live in sin. The Bible says if you give people grace, they will say no to ungodliness. That they will experience victory in their life. And they will have a testimony very close to their lips that will say, oh, not I, but the grace of God has done this. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, the grace of God bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than them all, but not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So grace doesn't nurture disobedience, but it teaches obedience. So, what does grace teach us? First of all, to deny ungodliness. That's anything contrary to the character of God. And worldly passions. This is the lust, and we all have those lust patterns, craving for the, uh, the, that which we would desire for self-gratification. This is what unbelievers perhaps find appealing we know we want it, we know we shouldn't have it, but grace teaches us to say no. But there's an important principle to complete that thought, and it's this. 
It's not the law that stops me, but it's grace. In fact, Paul teaches that the strength of sin is in the law. And we could extend that thought then to say that the weakness of sin is in grace. Right? So if you put someone under the law, the very sin principle within them is strengthened. But you put someone under grace and the sin principle is weakened. So the law may... The law may tell me to say no also, but it doesn't give me the power to, to follow through. Right? The law says, thou shalt not also. And it would, it would say, you must say no to this, but it doesn't empower me. But grace teaches me to say no, and with the no comes the enablement or the power of God to actually follow through. So it's not me fighting in the strength of my flesh, like Paul in his experience in Romans 7, well, I know what I should do, but I can't help myself, and I know what I shouldn't do, but I can't help... You know what I mean, I got it the wrong way around. In that horrible conflict, moral conflict, of Paul trying to fight his inner passions by the strength of his own flesh and coming up the failure each time. And he came to the glorious conclusion, oh, it is by grace. It is by Christ in me. So, it teaches us to deny two things, and it also teaches us to live in something. Let's read on. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, and it teaches us to live in self-control. This is a word we've come across a couple of times already in this passage, chapter 2. Self-control. So, phronos. It's an inward self-control, or the King James says to live soberly or with a clear mind, that we are healthy in the mind. You are not mastered by lust, but you have a control and a restraint in your life. That you would live self-controlled, upright. This is outwardly, if you like, morally or outwardly right, So inwardly controlled, outwardly living right towards your brothers and your neighbors, and godly or reverently. One is inward, one is outward, the other is upward. You are living before God with reverence. In this present age, in this life, in this time. Notice the next verse, verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope. The grace that is seen, that is found through his first coming, teaches us. And the hope we have towards his second coming holds us. It holds our focus while we wait. This is a present tense, a continued attitude of waiting in the believer's life. And what are we waiting for? The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glorious appearing. It's the same word, epiphany. But here he adds the word glorious. For in the first coming, it was in Bethlehem in a little manger scene. It wasn't announced in, in, the same, in that way. It was known by a few. But oh, the second epiphany or epiphano will be glorious. First as a lamb and secondly his second coming uh, will be in glory. An extremely clear statement of his 
deity, by the way, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This isn't referring to two persons of the Trinity. This is referring to Jesus, that he is our great God and Savior. It's very clear. And we are waiting for the glorious appearing, and it goes on, for the blessed hope. That's what we're waiting for, the blessed hope. That glorious appearing, we are waiting for it. And what are we doing while we wait? Notice the words, the first words there, while we wait. What are we doing while we wait? Well, we've read it. What are we doing? We are denying ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age to the glory of God, making the doctrine and the gospel of God beautiful through our lives. We experience victory, we glorify God, and we have a ministry and a testimony to the world as lights in the world. And who is coming? Says the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the next verse, who gave himself for us. Oh, every phrase is so beautiful and so important. This means his voluntary act of giving himself for us. And why did he do that? Just a few more minutes. Why did he do that? Who gave himself for us for two reasons. To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. To redeem us from from wickedness or lawlessness. We have been redeemed. It means to be bought back from the slave market of sin. We were slaves to sin with no option. We had no choice but to sin. But now we have a choice. Through His grace and through His Spirit. And to purify for Himself. This is to be cleansed, to be purged, to be made clean. A people, don't you love these words, that are His very own a people that are his very own, his prized possession. And what is the mark of these people in the last phrase? Eager to do what is good. Or the King James says, zealous for good works. That's the mark of a transformed life. Not good for goodness sake, but good because we live before God and we live in grace and through the Spirit-filled life, there is a goodness that emanates. For the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. It's one of the fruits. We see this all the way through the book, that doing what is good in Titus 2.3, speaks about doing that which is good. Someone might say, are you a good person? You say, well, I hope so, but if I am, it's by the grace of God. So, Paul will conclude in verse 15. Have you got all this, Titus? Have you got it? This is what you are to instruct. The older, the younger, the servants, and this is what you are to walk in in your own life and your own stewardship and to every other messenger of grace. These are then the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. But that you would teach, that's to teach, to speak, to preach, 
that you would encourage, that is, that you would passionately encourage or exhort like a coach would with the team, that you would rebuke when it's needed, a sharp word of correction, and let no man despise or depreciate you. Let no one, because of your life or your own shortcomings or failures or flesh, be able to discredit the message. Do not be intimidated, swayed, or belittled, for you are to teach sound doctrine and to preach the gospel of grace. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you this morning. Oh, we thank you for the word of God being open in our life and that you lead us and teach us, instruct us. That grace is our teacher. That you teach us not only to say no and to deny, but you empower us through your grace. You enable us that we would say, oh, oh, not, not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace upon our lives. Thank you that every day we have that glorious, fresh opportunity to be under your grace, to live in grace, to rest in, in what you have prepared for us. Oh, that there is no striving or fretting or sweating, but we are resting, trusting, and walking. And you are doing great things in our lives. Thank you for this local church. We sense your grace on our lives. That you would speak to us and touch us and change us evermore. That you would conform us to the image of your Son. That Jesus would be seen through us, our our vessels of clay. And yet all the glory that is in us that shines forth by your grace. We just pray for one another, just crossover prayers right here in this moment. We pray for one another in our workplace, in our families, on the streets, in all of the relationships we have. We pray all that it would be, there would be the adorning of doctrine. There would be the beautification of the gospel through our lives as we walk with you. And that's, it wouldn't be something that we're striving for or being overconscious of, but it would just be something that you do in our lives. Oh, we thank you and praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. We thank you how your word, how it rests like the, the dew on the, on the grass. It rests on our hearts and minds. You speak to us. Thank you. together we do pray for these next couple of weeks we do ask for opportunities to to pray to speak to invite to encourage we pray that through our prayers and our hands and our mouths our lives that people would hear people would come to know you people would draw near we ask you to do that And Lord, we pray perhaps there's someone in this room today that you're not sure if you're a Christian. Or you're listening online today. Oh, you are in the right moment. For the gospel is for you. The message is so clear, so simple. 
that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that he is the Savior, and that through him grace has appeared and it's extended to you this morning. You would just reach out in your heart and say yes to him. Say yes, Jesus. Oh, I believe in you. I trust you as my personal Savior today that you would come into my life, that I would sense your presence, that your grace would be my teacher, that you would teach me to say no and to say yes according to your will, that you would teach me how to live soberly, righteously in this world, not in a religious sense, but because of a love for you and because of your grace that has set us free. And if you're praying that prayer, just say, oh, thank you for saving me today, that I will be born again today by your grace through faith. And for each one of us, we pray you'd seal these words in our hearts by your spirit. We ask that you to give us remembrance. And, and some we would really pray, please, God, help us retain and remember these things. Bring them back to remembrance for us. Give us sweet reflections and meditations on this this week. We pray for those here this morning that need a physical touch. Perhaps you're here today, you need a healing. You want to believe God for that. Or just in your heart, pray, ask him to maybe lift your hand in an expression of faith and say, oh Lord, please touch me and heal me today. Hear my prayer. You know my ailment, you know my need. And I ask for you by your grace that you would reach down and touch me in this moment that you would heal me and deliver me. Perhaps there are some here this morning and you are struggling with a certain vice or temptation or character trait in your life and you would like deliverance this morning. Just say, oh God, help me and deliver me by your grace. I cannot deliver myself. I cannot change, but you can change me. Lord, I ask for that today. God, please do that in my life. Pray for every family here, every child, our extended families represented by each one here today. You know the needs. We pray for the, the, our unsaved loved ones, those who are uh, facing physical troubles and operations and health issues, uh, desires to, to uh, with selling property or moving or getting a new job or whatever it might be. Oh, God, we thank you that we can bring these petitions to you and you hear us today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.